0: Here we are. It's another Sunday evening just after seven o'clock, Mick. It doesn't seem like a month has passed since the last chat, but it has. And we've reached a milestone with the injection campaign.
1: Uh, We have indeed. And the milestone as well in that uh, I've had my uh, vaccination. So uh, my priority group is now being vaccinated. And I can say it was very fast. It was very efficient. It was painless. I didn't faint and I'm feeling perfectly, uh, perfectly well now. So I'm really pleased I've had the vaccination,
0: but it shows how much progress is being made in terms of getting people vaccinated. Well, that's that's all great progress. And and the first minister has started hinting that possibly we might have a little bit of normality back around Easter time.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a number of things that are happening, aren't there? The infection rate is going right down. It's been really successful, you know, and surprising examples, you know, places like Merthyr Tidville that were almost the most uh, infected area in uh, the United Kingdom is now one of the lowest areas in the United Kingdom. So it shows the impact everybody's efforts has had uh, and the impact of the lockdown, which we've had, of course, since uh, since December. So, That's one thing. And I think the positivity rate, that is the number of people being tested that are positive uh, has been going down uh, as well. And of course, as the vaccination rate increases, I think we're all beginning to look to see how we begin to plan for uh, a return to. Not a a previous uh, normality, but perhaps a new normality, a new environment where we live with COVID, we live with vaccination, but we start getting our economy together. We start being able to mix and travel. So I know there's uh, a lot of interest from business, a lot of interest from the tourism, the coach and transport industry, uh, and I think they've been the first positive signs I think the real commitment that's being given at the moment, though, is that the first relaxations are going to be around uh, starting to get our children back into schools again, many of whom have missed many, many months of education. And I know that is a lot of concern, how we do that, how we do it safely uh, and uh, but how we do it as quickly as possible
0: yes yeah, so yes that is a milestone isn't it and uh, we should uh, from the 22nd onwards we should see some uh, of the little youngsters going back to school although it's a phased thing a bit different uh, going across all the different uh, education authorities but it is a, it is a milestone indeed and if we can get some of our sort of holiday destinations open by easter which i think is the first minister's hope then that will start offering well a lifeline really to businesses that have been closed down I mean, Many of them do close down the the seasonal ones, of course, and, and reopen at Easter so it 's a significant time isn 't it to try and just start the getting the economy moving again it is
1: and, and of course it 's not just um you know, hotels opening uh, uh, and events uh, and, and uh, shows and things beginning to open uh, a bit. You know, if we look around the sort of on the and Tav area, you've got so many, uh, I call them attractions or historic community assets. You know, I, I look at the, the Nangaru uh, uh, pottery, you know, places like that, the Lantricent Guildhall, which has done so much in terms of the restoration of the Guildhall, ready for tourists Some visitors, but of course, have had to put that on hold. So we'll have a big impact, not just in terms of commercial tourism businesses, but many of our community uh, assets as well uh, run by volunteers. And I think they're looking forward very much to, to change as well
0: yes and and uh, of course you know the the railway uh, we've now had it going into public ownership which we've known is going to happen for a number of months but uh, that's been transferred over and the fellow who runs uh, transport for wales is saying that though there has been some delay because of covid they're they're still you know not too far behind schedule and i know they've done some extra track work where they had an unexpected yeah. uh, benefit of having less trains so they've done more track work and uh, you know the framework is up now for the sort of engine shed or whatever you call it in modern terms tram shed uh, down at tafts well too
1: yeah, I mean, the progress there is uh, phenomenal. Uh, I know the site well because in my sort of past life as a trade union lawyer, uh, I would go and visit uh, South Wales forge masters, which was one of the last historic foundries uh, in South Wales. You know, very noisy, very dirty profession, but in the days we depended on a lot more cast metal. And those sheds, which became businesses for a while, are now being knocked down and they are going to be converted into a modern train maintenance depot uh, so there'll be a new bridge there'll be a railway line that will cross over link into the shed the potential there for several hundred jobs which are always very valuable uh, in the uh, Ta- Taftswell area uh, but also the fact that we've got these new trains that are going to be coming in that people are soon going to be able to ride on those new trains and all the work that's going on with the upgrading of the station so I think that is really, uh, really exciting news uh, for public transport, but also for moving into sort of 21st century transport.
0: Have you heard any more about your pet project, the line from St. down into Cardiff? Well, my pet project
1: is still under discussion by the councils of Cardiff and Rhondda Cunantaf. I'm hoping there will be uh, announcements soon of taking it through to really the next stages of examination of the project. I think about £700,000 has been spent. Uh, looking at the business case for the reopening of a former railway line from Cardiff to uh, uh So it would be a spur to Bay there with a view to a spur then to Ponticlean. Uh, and, of course, it's an area where there's a lot of housing development. Most of the railway line is is still there. There's lots of things. The precise route have still got to be looked at. The councils have got to look carefully at the business plan, the viability. Uh, and also then, uh, as we move probably uh, during the course of the year to the issue of funding, uh, the amount it's going to cost, when that might be available, uh, when you could actually start doing it. I, I just think... The signs are positive. Uh, there's still quite a bit of groundwork to be done on it, but I'm feeling more confident uh, than I was last year. And last year I was more confident than the year before. So uh, all I can say is I'm feeling positive.
0: I heard of another project, a possible project this week, which is further behind yours, in the sense that it's only starting to be talked about now. But that's uh, the extension of passenger trains, possibly from Aberdare up to Herewine, where a track already exists, I understand. In fact, if you stand on Aberdare station, you know, the track goes away in the opposite direction to Mountain Ash. And and there is a a discussion going on now, I think, about possibly whether that could be opened, perhaps to help, um, you know, to transport people nearer to the zip wire and other attractions that are going on there at the very top you know, of the RCT area. And I was talking, chatting to Vicky Howells a couple of days ago, and she confirmed that she and Andrew Morgan uh, have taken the, the idea to the Welsh government as well. So um, Brad, our newshound, based up in uh, uh, Mountain Ash, has already talked to Transport for Wales, who said, well, they don't have a plan yet to extend there, but they are aware that there is a line. Uh, and, you know, sometime in the future, they might look at that as well.
1: Oh listen ab- absolutely and it 's not particularly a new idea it 's been talked about for quite a number of years. in fact, ever since the uh, miners took over and bought out the the colliery there tower colliery and Of course, the colliery there and the land around it um, is still owned by the the company about from all the, of all the miners who put uh, money into to save the colliery at that time, so that is very much a sort of community. Uh, asset there uh, and it would make perfect sense because it would reopen that part of land uh, there would not just be potentially the tourist attractions but there could be other uh, commercial activity there as well as residential and one of the key things that would be needed would be uh, the extension of the railway line to it zip wire there is a lot of excitement about it not in my household you will never get me up <laughs> that high onto one of those things but uh, i know when i was visiting it's it's uh, it's sister zip wire in, uh, in Blona Fistiniog. Uh, Certainly all my kids went down on it. I refused to go down on it. I could hear them screaming from miles away, and they tell me that these days that that is enjoyment. Um, But, uh, you know, it is – certainly as a tourist attraction, it is – zip wires are phenomenal. And the actual route of the zip wire and coming over the old colliery and everything else I think is absolutely uh, stunning and what a great asset it it will be. And, of course, things like that result in the development of an area that is – has been seen as sort of uh, difficult to develop so i think that's exciting and um i think the idea that we are now talking about the idea of reopening old railway lines is i think a really important one because it means we have a different mindset now on transport you know getting people out of their cars off the roads and
0: onto good quality public transport now, while we're talking about trains, one of my colleagues here at the station, uh, Howard, who is uh, our Sunday morning presenter, and he used to be a train driver. He's a retired train driver. He's still hyperactive and more, got more energy than the rest of us. Um, uh, but he is uh, following the progress, of course, of the little trains of Wales, which are, most yeah. of them have been closed down, obviously, while the pandemic's been on, but are a great tourist attraction. And of course, they're powered by coal. And it's not PC to be digging up coal anymore. Or of course, even here in Wales. But uh, Howard asked me to ask you if you knew whether there are any Welsh sources of fuel for these trains, possibly.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting. You, you should ask that because I think there is still some coal being extracted, some from open cast, uh, but also there is a coal mine that is still operating, as far as I understand. Um, Unity Mine, uh, not far from uh, Herewine actually, uh, and that's interesting because it, it was a mine that uh, uh, was supplying coal for energy, and of course. That's where the market has disappeared. But as I understand it, they are producing coal predominantly for filtration. So it's not for actually burning. It's for filtering water. It's the carbon that's being used in that particular way. Now, my understanding is is that there is uh, Welsh coal available uh, for things like uh, steam trains and those specialist niches mm. uh, and so on. But I, I will certainly be checking that now to find out exactly where it does come from. There was a time, of course, when Coal was having to be imported from abroad because we closed the coal mines down here. And, of course, you had a lot of retired miners who still had an entitlement to a certain amount of coal uh, each year for the remainder of their lives. So i will be interesting to see what the, what the state of that is. But, um, oh, well, let's hope uh, with, with the Welsh steam trains, they should certainly have a bit of Welsh steam coal. It is niche, and the Welsh coal was the best, and uh, uh, I don't think there would be any objections to those niche trains because uh, you think about it, all the people that are travelling on those trains are, are not in their cars, polluting in other ways. So I will find out, Terry, and I will let you know. I will be ringing my friend at the National Union of Mine Workers South Wales uh, later, later, Later on today, to find out where Welsh coal can be accessed for the Little Trains of Wales.
0: Excellent. We'll come back to that, and and, uh, Howard will be delighted to know you've uh, picked up the the baton uh, on that one. Okay. And now and, uh, this week, this last week, we've had a statement from the Welsh Government um, about the new targets mm. as we carbon neutral entirely now by 2050. And uh, that's going to be in law. So that's a step. Well, the environmentalists would say certainly that is a step forward. It's certainly a step forward. I think the
1: objective will be uh, to ensure that we have achieved that target by 2050, but the objective is to achieve it by much, much earlier, ideally within the next decade, the next 10, 15 years, if that is possible. And it's really about willpower, isn't it? It's about willpower. It's about economic change, restructuring of the economy, uh, renewable energy, and so on. So we want to see that target achieved much, much sooner. Um, but I think it is a starting point, isn't it, that uh, putting it into law, uh, making it a an obligatory uh, objective means that governments have to take that action. Of course, I won't be around in 30 years, but I will certainly be given my uh, my commitment to that objective. Oh, bless. OK. <laughs> well, it's probably the same with my railway line, actually. I may never get to ride on it, but maybe they'll uh, name a train
0: after me or something. Well, I'm sure that, yes, that'll be the McAntonif Express, <laughs> uh, stopping at all stations, of course. But I was just thinking, people don't realise quite, though, do they, from these, they go, oh, yes, good idea, good idea. But actually, I don't think people quite realise the, uh, the effects this will have on their lives. Vibes, like having to replace their gas boilers as well as their cars. We all know about cars, but I don't think we know about gas boilers yet publicly.
1: All the devices that consume fossil fuel uh, are things that are going to have to change. And, of course, one of the ones that there hasn 't really been that much controversy about it, but I'm sure as we approach closer to the date there will be and that is by a certain date uh, basically eliminating fossil fuel cars, so basically cars on petrol and uh, uh, and diesel, uh, which means basically moving to electrification of vehicles now that 's an interesting part of the green economy you know investment in new cars, new engines, and a lot of car manufacturers have already said they will be stopping the production of you know fossil fuel cars by a certain deadline and so on so that is about creating a uh, transport that uh, ensuring that it is environmentally friendly it doesn't necessarily resolve the congestion problem that's a, that, that's another matter but it does pose another major challenge and that is if all our cars are running on electric we have to have the capacity to produce electricity and I think that's where the technology of renewable energy comes in and where the real opportunities exist for the investment in uh, renewable energies whether it be wind, whether it be solar, uh, whether it be wave, uh, or whatever other format uh, it might be, you know, hydrogen conversion, etc. So, you know, I think there's a lot of change underway that, uh, as we come out of the COVID environment, the things we're beginning to start talk about, and we'll have to start looking at how we
0: change our lives, I think, to some degree. Would I be right in assuming that the Prime Minister has a blind spot uh, about sea power, about wave power? Because I notice he never mentions it when he's talking about, you know, um, green projects like all the, he wants lots of wind farms. I mean, we all know in Wales, you know, wind farms can be incredibly effective. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with wind farms. But of course, here we've got Tidal energy, which could produce, you know, megawatts of power and power cities like Swansea and half of Cardiff if, if taken seriously. And, and, and obviously, I think it was the Theresa May government that looked at the Swansea Bay um, idea, uh, the, you know, the, yeah. the barrage there, and rejected it on cost grounds. They said it just would cost too much relative to the cost of the electricity it would generate. And I get the impression now that the UK government may have kind of shelved the whole idea of tidal power? Well,
1: it, it certainly is a blind spot. Uh, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't understand the uh, UK government's approach to this. I wonder whether it is more to the fact that they do not. Well, well two things. One is that they put all their sort of toys in the basket of nuclear energy, hadn't they? Uh, and of course that has really fallen through uh, to some degree, although there are now noises that it might, might re-merge. But at one stage, Tinkley Point and Wolver were going to be the, the, the future for so-called clean energy. I, I don't necessarily regard them as clean energy because the legacy of contaminated radioactive material uh, remains. Uh, and I think it's also to the fact that it means the energy companies, would have to give commitments in terms of price. So the government would have to underwrite a price for the energy that was produced in those, for, from those particular sources. And I just don't think they want to do that. Um, I, I think they shied away uh, from giving a long-term commitment. I suspect there may well be representations from the energy companies as well. Uh, but I think it is very, very short-sighted because I think it is a natural asset the technology tends to follow the demand and the investment. Uh, and uh, it, is, it was a grave tragedy, I think, that we've not pre- pre- proceeded with the uh, Swansea uh, Tidal Bay uh, energy capacity. There are other options that are still being looked at that may happen on a lower scale. But, you know, to be honest, I-, I think there were opportunities there that have been missed. And I would hope perhaps in the next... Welsh Parliament this whole issue is going to re-emerge again as something that not only could we do it is something I think that we have to do and is such a real natural asset that Wales has you know the ability to produce so much uh, wave-powered renewable energy.
0: Well, the thing about wave power is it's there twice a day all the year round. Weather doesn't affect it. Nothing affects it. It's utterly reliable. And that's different, obviously, from wind, which is uh, great when it's blowing. But if you have a quiet in a few days, you're not generating anything with wind at all. Whereas with waves, you know, it's consistent. And Although you know, there's a lot of uh, development work that needed to be done, until you build a big project like the Swansea project or, or, or indeed the one that's been proposed for Cardiff Bay, which I think is a bit smaller than the Swansea one, someone needs to build one in order to get the technology and the, the know-how. And, and it would be a very good thing if we did that in Wales, I would have thought. The, the problem
1: with the investment is you're talking about uh, tens of billions of pounds investment. Uh, but in order to make that investment work, uh, you have got to uh, have a guarantee of the, the price of the energy you're going to produce to get a return on it. And it is that element, I think, that has been the problem, getting the UK government to commit itself to that uh, so I think there's still a lot of political work to be done on that. And it may be that the climate emergency will force the hand, but I, I can tell you that certainly all of those in the uh, in the Welsh Parliament, across you know, parties and so on, are intensely frustrated at the inability of the UK government to give a commitment on that, to enable that investment to take place. It would put Wales at the forefront of green technology, uh, potentially create enormous, numbers of jobs uh, it would support the universities the academic area in terms of innovation and research you know there are so many positives that it is really disappointing it has been allowed to to languish on the uh, on the uh, sheet
0: of ideas and of course it, in north wales up in anglesey uh, the, the likelihood of getting the new nuclear station seems quite remote now It does.
1: There have been talks about sort of further discussions and so on. But, you know, it is such a major and such an expensive initial investment and the long term legacy from it. You know, we look now at the uh, nuclear power stations that have closed down where we're having to spend tens of millions of pounds for the next hundreds of years. Uh, just to actually keep them contained uh, because of the re- radioactivity. Uh, I, I think nuclear has had its day. I can't see any sensible country wanting to go down that road now when the technology of renewable energy, uh, solar energy, wind energy, and all the other potential sources, including you know, uh, h- hydrogen and so on, uh, are, are there to be tapped uh, and what it needs is long-term commitment to the, invest- into the investment, the innovation and the research and the commitment by government to achieve it. You know, it's funny looking at um, some of our old heavy industries, you know, really interesting project in in Sweden where they've now developed the production of steel. Uh, without the use of fossil fuels, you know I mean uh, you know for years we 've been told well you can only produce steel with coal or with gas, etc Well, of course, there are alternatives, and what it requires is the willpower and the recognition of the uh, climate emergency we 're facing I, i've Just before coming onto to the program, I had a meeting with a number of young young people aged between fourteen and uh, seventeen who are really asking for there to be specific Part of the education curriculum should be teaching people about climate emergency and so on. And it's really interesting what they've got to say. And, of course, they are the generation is that's going to have to deal with the legacy that we've given them of a, of a planet on the brink of uh, annihilation because of uh, climate uh, change.
0: Yes. What we're learning from the process is something tips the the cycle and it kind of runs yeah. out of control. And, and we're very close to this now. So, yes, I, I'm kids asking is it's perfectly sensible, actually. Uh, and the ones you were talking to today, well, the, the 17 year olds will be voting in a few months time for the first time in, in the Welsh government elections. You know, how, how ready do you think they are to do that?
1: these guys are really uh, ready. They're uh, already approaching political parties and want to know what's going to be in the manifesto. Uh, and and so, they, so they should. You know, I, I mean, I had to give them the usual answer. Well, the manifesto is being drafted at the moment. I'm sure there will be a very strong commitment to, uh, to the green economy and to cl- the issues around climate change. But it's absolutely right that people of that generation now Are asking those questions because we're the ones who've really dumped them in it. We've dumped the planet in it and they're the ones who are going to have to fix it. So it's only right they should be asking. And also at 16, they should be entitled to have a vote to, so they they can uh, influence uh, those policies as well. Are we the first part of the UK with a vote for 16 year olds? Uh, no, Scotland had the, the vote, certainly in their referendum. Um, I'm not sure they have it in their Scottish Parliament elections. I think they probably do. But certainly when they had the Scottish independence referendum, 16-year-olds were able to vote. Uh, but it'll be the first time in Wales. Uh, and, of course, it will be next year's council elections will also 16-year-olds will be voting. I think the other thing that's interesting, of course, within Wales is all those European citizens who are domiciled now in Wales will also be entitled to vote. Vote, and I think that's a very positive
0: step forward as well. Yes, there are about 74,000 of those, aren't they, by the latest count today?
1: Well, there are. They make their lives here. They pay their taxes and, you know, no representation without, no taxation without representation. Um, uh, they're, they're entitled. Many are married. Many have children here and so on. Uh, at one stage, my parents were in that sort of situation. So, uh, you know, I think it is absolutely right that if you made your life here and you pay your taxes here and you work here and this is your home, you have an entitlement to say uh, who is in government here. But it was a deliberate decision by the uh, uh, the Welsh Parliament and the Welsh Government to actually extend the voting rights specifically there once we'd left the European Union uh, because uh, it, was, it was leaving the European Union that took away their uh, voting entitlement. Uh, so effectively what we have done is said, well, that shouldn't impact on your entitlement to a, to a voice within uh, the, the, our democracy uh, and that is what has been restored to them by the uh, uh, elections legislation that's been passed.
0: Well, here we are six weeks now, um, post Brexit, and uh, we're not seeing many lorries coming through Wales on the, on the way to the ports because they're all getting on ferries at Cherbourg and Dieppe, I understand, to go straight to uh, Dublin, uh, you know, without passing through the UK uh, because of its perceived difficulties of being outside the EU now, uh, for whatever the reason is, we're not seeing that business coming through Wales anymore. And although everyone's saying it's, it's a temporary thing, don't worry, it doesn't look like it's temporary.
1: It is very worrying. I know that the First Minister has had meetings with his counterparts in, uh, in Ireland. I think in Ireland they're concerned... Uh, as well, because you know the longer journeys uh, cost more, um, it would be cheaper if they could pass through the uh, the u k um, but I mean this is the the legacy I think of leaving the European Union and brexit. Um, I think the promises that were made haven 't turned out uh, as was promised, and of course, we have farmers and uh, seafood uh, producers um, who are now. Uh, up in arms over the fact that they can't export their produce because of the difficulties of getting it through within a reasonable period of time. The real fear we have is, of course, that Welsh ports get bypassed, so they go straight into English or Scottish ports, uh, or they go straight through to the European continent, uh, bypassing Wales. And that has really significant implications in terms of trade within the UK, in terms of jobs as well, uh, and in terms of the cost of Goods and produce. So, uh, the combination of all of these things is um, really very worrying at the uh, at the moment, and the destabilisation of the situation in Northern Ireland, which is meant to be part of the UK, but for all intents and purposes now, is actually. Uh, still part of the European Union and probably closer to the Irish Republic than it is to the UK now because of the the way the the agreement on the border has now been reached uh, and it's causing a lot of problems in Northern Ireland and a lot of concerns there in the Irish Republic and in the Northern Ireland Assembly.
0: Well, let's hope it doesn't kick off there. I, I yes, I was hearing the uh, the Prime Minister of uh, of era talking about that actually on the telly the other night. It is very worrying. Uh, I think at the moment they're not just bypassing uh, Wales though; they're bypassing the UK. Because the ferry services have already increased. They've put more ferries on the routes linking France with Ireland. And that's the way the trade is going, including things like Amazon, you know, shipping stuff to yeah. customers in error from uh, the Netherlands where they've got a big base, haven't they? And they're shifting stuff onto lorries uh, via France uh, into Ireland directly.
1: Yeah, no, listen, that's,
0: that, that's absolutely
1: right. I mean, I think the actual trade was down uh, something like 60%, wasn't it, at uh, at one stage? It's picked up a little, uh, but I have had complaints from local businesses in Wales, in in the uh, local area, uh, who've been showing to me the documentation they've got to fill in, the number of hours it takes to complete that documentation. They're not even necessarily guaranteed of getting through with that documentation. Um, So, you know, we we have borders, we have uh, holdups of goods on the border. Uh, It's impacting in terms of food imports. Uh, We know that already. And we know it's also impacting in terms of price, and uh, but may have a long-term impact on the Welsh economy, and that, of course, is a, is a real concern to us. We were, I was discussing this uh, the other day in a, a meeting we have where we scrutinised the work of the First Minister, Mark Drakeford, and of course, one of the points I've made is that, of course, what Welsh farmers and Welsh seafood producers had a direct voice into the decision-making process in the European Union. Because of their um, arrangements with sub-national. Uh, bodies yeah, that is where you have devolved governments in Europe, they, uh, where they have devolved responsibilities. There was an arrangement whereby the European Union decision makers, European Parliament and the Commission, would engage directly with governments like Wales and Scotland and so on. And effectively, it meant that farmers uh, uh, and pro- and ag- other producers uh, of uh, of produce would be able to uh, uh, directly influence that decision making process. Unfortunately, it seems to be the case now that we've lost that. It has all been centralised in London. It seems to be being centralised for the benefit of England. Uh, and there were real complaints about the lack of engagement with the Welsh Government and with the Scottish Government.
0: Changing the subject, bringing it back to RCT, what uh, developments are we seeing happening here? I mean, we're, we're not far away from seeing quite a few projects coming to fruition in, in Ponty
1: there are lots of interesting announcements in terms of investment. I mean, a big one is really with regard to Addison Harrod Park in the centre of Pontypridd. Uh, There's going to be, I think, multi-million pound investment there in terms of the upgrading of the park and hopefully preparing that for the uh, Ice Deadford when that comes in a couple of years' time. So I think that's that's quite exciting. Um, And of course, there's a a lot of investment in the pipeline in respect of the 21st century schools program. We've already seen some fantastic new schools that have been built in uh, Apant in Pontyclean, Tonarevel uh, Community Comprehensive School, uh, incredible uh, school facilities, a lot of uh, junior schools as well. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of investment planned there that I think is important. There's still, of course, a lot of uh, infrastructure work to go on within the Cunituff kind of because this coming week is the 12 month anniversary of that terrible flooding that we had. Sixth was it? Sixteenth of February was fifteenth uh, was fifteenth or sixteenth, mm. um, and uh, I, I, you know, I think um, there's a lot of work still to go on there. There's been an enormous amount of money spent. I mean, we spent thirty-one million pounds, I think, uh, that we managed to claw back from the UK government. But there's another thirty or forty million pounds worth of infrastructure work to take place. Uh, there are bridges to be repaired or replaced. Uh, so there's a lot of things that are going on that way that obviously need. To to be done as well. So, you know, there's a lot of work cut out for the konotav Council. Uh, and I think in what is a very difficult uh, you know, economic environment, we don't know how much money we're going to have Yes, next year. Uh, and that is a cause of
0: concern as well. With the schools, what's your take on the uh, appeal, uh, you know, here in Ponty? Because the school project here has been on hold and has recently been, uh, the break has been let off again by the High Court Appeal Court, in fact, that has that found in favour of RCT Council. But there's still a good deal of disquiet, particularly around the, the Welsh language provision, I think, in the north of Ponty, isn't there?
1: There, there are some, some issues there, and I know that, I mean, basically there was a judicial review of plans which involved a certain amount of school reorganisation, but also a lot of uh, new investment in new school buildings and so on. Uh, there was an issue that's been raised in respect of one of the Welsh uh, schools uh, and some issues around that. So I think uh, rather than kind of council are keen to negotiate and discuss with parents how those might be resolved. But basically there was a judicial review, there was a decision that went against Rhondda Cynon Taf council uh, it was appealed welsh government of course had an interest in the appeal uh, and the council succeeded overwhelmingly in overturning the appeal you know the lower court uh, got the law Uh, Wrong. So the council is able to proceed, but I I understand from certain discussions I have that uh, uh, they're keen to look at some of the issues with regard to the parents. Uh, But obviously they're now in a position to actually press on with the school reforms and reorganisation that
0: they have wanted to carry through. Of course, it's Apprentice Week, or it's been Apprentice Week this last week now, up to up to the weekend. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, apprenticeships being advertised, uh, I see, uh, from the council of, of all sorts of people, actually. There seems to be quite a good focus on it this year. Uh, there is, and of course, there's been a lot of economic
1: things on hold, uh, companies unable to actually develop uh, their apprenticeships, but I think getting ready now for possible uh, some economic upturn or relaxation of the, the COVID restrictions. I mean, it's really interesting. One of the uh, commitments that the Welsh Government gave uh, was to create 100,000 uh, training and apprenticeship opportunities over the five years of its uh, Lifespan uh, and it has exceeded that. So I think within Wales there's been a very strong emphasis on the importance of, well, the importance of education, the importance of degrees, but also. That equally so is the importance of apprenticeships, getting people into manufacturing, in, into engineering, into sciences uh, and many other fields as well. So it's really good to see those apprenticeships coming forward um, because I think we're going to need them. And I think we're going to need a lot more investment into things like training and that in the future, really, as the economy probably reshapes as we come out of the COVID pandemic.
0: Where do you think things are going to go for the aviation industry, Mick? Is there any sign of, you know, well, I mean, till planes start flying again, I guess nothing's going to happen, is it?
1: Well, till planes start flying again, and of course, the fact that the planes aren't flying means that the airports are... Are operating massively under capacity, and of course there are major restrictions in the airports now because of the um, COVID variants that we're concerned about, whether it be South Africa, whether it be Brazil, or other parts uh, of the world. And of course, if the airports aren't working, then you don't have all the uh, coaches taking people backwards and forwards. You then don't have the, the the holiday industry. So there's a big chain reaction of of literally hundreds of thousands of jobs, if not millions of jobs across the uk that are very much dependent on that my thinking is that over the course of the next three or four months you will begin to start seeing a increase in flights you will begin to see a slight opening of the uh, tourism industry international travel but my i suspect it may take several years before it gets back to where it was. If it ever does get back to where it was before, I think we're talking about a perhaps a smaller... Uh, aircraft industry than we've had in the past Uh, but either ways i think we've got a good two or three years where it's going to take it's going to be a slow recovery and of course that impacts on companies in the local area like ge who do the maintenance on the engines if planes aren't flying then you don't need the engineers to repair the engines so Mm. you know that part of that chain reaction is obviously having an impact on the local economy
0: well, that's really why I asked, uh, you know, because the, obviously there's the position where GE have cut back on their workforce. And, and of course, this you know, pandemic has gone on and on and on since that announcement was made. Uh, and as I understand it they're
1: due to furlough another 160 workers. So it's good that the furlough is there. It is disappointing that there hasn't been any specific sectoral support from the UK government for the aviation industry. It's also really disappointing that whereas the UK government have recognised the need for financial support for airports, they're only supported airports in England. Mm. So the Bristol Airport, um, and we're told that we can't have passenger duty devolved to the Welsh Government because it might give us an economic advantage over airports like Bristol. But then the UK government gives £8 million to Bristol Airport, but not a penny to Cardiff Airport. So I'm afraid there's uh, a lot of disquiet about the unfair uh, approach uh, of of decisions that have been taken in London at the moment.
0: Well, the whole thing with with travel, I suppose, is a little bit like the the cars, really. I mean, the the Mm. issue with cars is about the pollution, really. And, and in, you know, 10 or 20 years' time, there won't be any car pollution. We will still have congestion, probably, because people will be <laughs> buying electric cars instead of using your your favourite public transport. But we, let's hope, you know, you get a breakthrough and, and more people switch to public transport. But the pollution issue will go away um, rather than be there forever. And I think that's the case with planes. I mean, they're, they're doing a lot of research work on yeah. other ways of powering planes that are really quite amazing. And, uh, you know, it won't be too long, I don't think, before the planes are far less polluting. So, again, that issue of polluting the atmosphere, you know, changes the dynamic because at the moment all the emphasis so far is taking less flights, you know, going less places and and so on. We all have to cut back. But when the planes aren't polluting, uh, that's not the same situation, is it?
1: Oh, listen, I tell you what, the first company that, diverged, that, that uh, manages to develop a carbon neutral uh, plane engine, you know, and we're not talking about gliders now, um, <laughs> will, uh, uh, you know, will really be at the forefront of technology. No, I, th- I think you're right. Um, it's just that uh, we, know, we know that there is investment that is, being te- that is taking place. There is a lot of research on, um, on, on new, uh, new engines that will be much more fuel efficient still essentially fuel-based, but also looking at alternative uh, non-fossil fuel-powered engines. And, you know, listen... I'm sure we have the ability. I'm sure we have the technology. Uh, Necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. uh, And all it requires is the willpower uh, and the commitment to actually achieve it. You know, you look at all the things that we could have had. I mean, we could have had electric car engines a long, long time ago. It's just there was cheap fossil fuel and the incentive wasn't there. The reason we're moving to electric now is because fossil fuels are becoming too expensive. They are polluting. So all the add-ons mean that we've got to look for an alternative uh, and of course that is what we are now achieving uh, and i think there are many areas and i think it equally applies to the aviation industry i mean i like the idea of being able to fly i think the ability of people to go from one country to another i think is one is a real civilizing force within our uh, within our society but again you know it's, it's got to be within the framework uh, of, of climate challenge
0: Well, yes, an interesting point you make about that, about electric vehicles, because, I mean, there have been electric milk floats around all the time I've been on the planet. And so proving that you can actually have vehicles powered by electric, you know, it was not exactly new technology.
1: Listen, there are so many areas like this, isn't it? You know, maybe it's the way the economic system has operated that if you can make money out of something that exists, why bring something in just because it is uh, good for the uh, environment and socially desirable? You know, whether it be light bulbs. You know, we used to have all those light bulbs. Now we have these LED light bulbs that produce that use far less electricity. They last much, much longer. Uh, and I think in many other areas as well. So you know, uh, I just, I just think. Government and policy has got to actually set the framework within which these things can operate and you've got to bite the bullet and resist the uh, the power of some of the big corporations. You know, we've got to look to the long term future and the long term future has got to be that our, our, our planet has got to become
0: uh, environmentally sustainable. Well, it has indeed, and a lot of the work now is going into developing batteries and other forms of power that aren't batteries that are more more efficient still to make electric things work. And I think that's you know that's a good development because you can have high performance cars now. I mean, milk floats aren't exactly high performance. Uh, <laughs> as well, we have t- listen,
1: we have lots of natural fuel, don't we? Yeah. I mean, we are we are a planet that is two thirds water. Water is H H2, two H two O, isn't it? So hydrogen and oxygen. Hydrogen can plow. Engines, So the issue of using the breakdown of water in order to produce hydrogen gas and use the hydrogen, you know, there's already a lot of research that's uh, taking place within that. And surely that's going to be one of the big technological breakthroughs in the course of the the coming years. And that's something that I think government
0: policy should be investing in and uh, encouraging and forcing along. Back to the situation of the the Welsh Parliament now, Um, I I noticed that during the last seven days you passed a a law that allows some flexibility in the way that the elections uh, are done. I know know the intention is to try and still have them. Is is it the 6th of May uh, on the day? Um, but, But if they aren't able to be on the day, I think now the Welsh Government has latitude to move them by, is it six months
1: yes yes i mean it's uh, it's legislation that has gone through as emergency legislation and as the first minister said it's a power that no one wants to use it is purely there in the event that a public health emergency arises in respect of covid that means that it might not be possible to have a safe election that is an election where people feel safe about being able to go out and vote so the world's is doing a number of things i mean first First, it's encouraging people to register for postal votes because if you register for postal votes, uh, you one, you have a much longer time span in terms of voting, but you don't have to, you can do it and be shielded. You can do it from within your home. You know, you just have to post the letter. So it doesn't force, you know, loads of people to go to polling stations to mix and possibly uh, spread COVID. Um, so, uh, this, you know, so, so there are all those things that are in hand uh, as well. And I mean, and I'd encourage... Uh, anybody however they're going to vote to register vote and to register for a postal vote and i'm sure there will be campaigns uh for that to happen but basically it gives the government the power uh to or gives the presiding officer the Chloe, uh if she thinks that there are reasons why a safe election cannot proceed then if there is a two-thirds majority of Senate members, so that means 40 out of the 60 Senate members. Uh, so there has to be a very clear majority. It can be postponed by up to six months. That's a maximum of six months. So it is a, a power in reserve. My view is, I think, as things stand, I asked the First Minister about this the other day and he said, well, look, if I could project now that the improvements we're making, the figures we've got now in terms of the reduction, etc., if I could project and say that that is going to continue... All the way through, he said, then uh, there's no reason at all whatsoever that we can't proceed on the 6th of May. Uh, But just in case, uh, because, you know, we've had these hiccups with COVID before, just in case there's a public health issue, it's a reserve power to, to enable the election to be pushed back a bit.
0: Yes, well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? This election, because of the high, much much higher awareness of the fact that we have a Welsh government and it is it has significant powers, you know, through this pandemic. I mean, a lot of the population it didn't really realise what the Welsh government did now do. So the stakes are much higher in the sense you're much more likely to get the public buying into the idea of voting in the election in in a much greater way than you have the you know the Russian roulette factor of the youngsters. It's 16 to 18 year olds and nobody knows what they're going to do. I mean, you have, you, you've met a lot of them and you have some idea, but I think the parties will be quite nervous about predicting the effect of those youngsters coming on board because they do have radically different views to the traditional views that they, and, um, you know, certainly on climate change they do, but they may on others. And the only way we're going to find out is when they rock up and vote and see how that affects everything. But, but the situation is that, you know, they, Uh, The stakes are much higher than any previous election, and yet you won't be able to do your normal stuff like banging on doors, will you? No, communication is going going to be difficult. I mean, there's no doubt
1: people are aware now in Wales, in fact, in England as well, that uh, we have a Parliament in Wales that that Parliament sets laws that laws that are made in Wales for local uh, Welsh issues are often different to those in England they 've seen that within health and hence all the comparators so sometimes very unfair uh, comparators in terms of Wales versus England England versus Wales you know England versus Scotland all, and, and all those sorts of issues but what it does mean is that people are now more aware that they have what the Welsh Parliament does, the powers it has of devolution and the fact that what we've really had during COVID has not been uh, sort of much devolved government, but almost four-nation government, whereas the nations of Scotland, Northern Ireland, uh, Wales and England, uh, you know, England through the Westminster Parliament, uh, have been getting together to try and collaborate over uh, common common objectives. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's worked very effectively, other times uh, less so. Uh, sometimes it's, it's been very positive and other times, You know, the the relationship has been negative. But there's no doubt that government and uh, devolution has changed very, very radically to how it was, you know, 12, 15 months ago.
0: Well, well, it has indeed. And and through that experience, there has been some progress, hasn't there? I mean, I I think, you know, when you look at the early days of the lockdowns and all of that, the, the amount of conversation going on that seems to be quite useful. I mean, the idea of, of Christmas, I mean, it, it, it fell apart slightly because the pandemic went totally out of control and well beyond what everyone was projecting. Yeah. But the idea of actually talking, getting together and allowing that sort of reprieve for people at Christmas to, to actually see people just for the one day was, you know, quite an interesting uh, exercise in, in cooperation.
1: No I I think I, th- I think that's right and of course uh, interestingly enough was the common approach that's been adopted uh, by all four medical officers chief medical officers of the four nations, uh, collectively with the four, the four governments coming together on deciding the priority system for vaccination, so they 've assessed the common evidence of where the greatest risks are, uh, and they 've developed a priority system which has enabled the vaccination system to work through that, not without controversy and of course you know, a lot of anxiety uh, around that all, uh, but nevertheless in a consistent way across the whole of the United Kingdom. So, where there is common interest, the four nations can work well together. Uh, Where there are different uh, approaches, well, obviously, you get different uh, systems then. And of course, COVID is a classic example because, you know, isn't it probably only right that you might have different types of lockdown in areas depending upon the level of infection? You know, you would have a different approach to some areas that might have very low infection levels. Uh, But within Wales, we adopted approach of basically having an across the board uh, uh, lockdown so that everywhere was treated equally. But also that we recognised that just because an area didn't have uh, a high infection rate now didn't mean that it wasn't going to have in the next week or two. And I think Merthyr is a very good example of that.
0: Well, yes, I suppose it's the uh, the infectiousness of the um, of the Kent variant that is the issue that people are worried about at the yes. moment, Yes. because that seems to gallop out of control, and that is they now think what led to the rapid rises we saw just before Christmas. You know we had infection out of control, really, and I think the nervousness now and the reason everyone, including the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister's notably more cautious about relaxing. Uh, The situation in England, I mean, actually, here in Wales, we're slightly ahead in the sense of making murmurings, at least about, you know, a few things coming back by Easter, the Prime Minister isn't, and his schools are going back later. And and I think all of this is driven by, as you say, those four medical officers who are saying, well, look, look what happened before Christmas, We, we can't have that again. Yeah, and I think it's right. I mean, although the First Minister, Mark Drakeford, has been talking
1: about relaxations, he is very cautious on this. I don't think he's going to risk prejudicing the progress we're making. So it will only be if they are confident that the the level is down uh, to such an extent that we've got to get the kids back into schools and so on because of the recognition also that our children not being in school uh, may have long-term consequences uh, on those children so you know the, the, the desire to have uh, education starting again as a priority uh, is very very strong and a lot of work and a lot of discussions taking place on that
0: Mick what, what's top of your agenda over the next couple of weeks now before we meet again
1: Uh, Well, I I think the next couple of weeks, I mean, I've got uh, this week is going to be really reflecting on the uh, flood work that has been done and the flood work that needs to be done. Um, Of course, we've only got uh, five or six weeks before uh, we uh, go into Perda, that is. Uh, we uh, effectively almost cease for all intents and purposes to be Senate members and we get ready for the election. So I think really probably one of the big things I'm going to be looking at is making sure that there's progress on the vaccination uh, side the opening of the new vaccination centres. So, for example, the new vaccination centre in Lantricent, Um so that that will scale up. Um, There's going to be a bit of a hiccup in supplies as production methods change for one of the vaccines, uh, but that will uh, result in more uh, production. So I think we're going to have an even further escalation of the number of vaccinations taking place. So we've got to make sure that happens and also that any legislation we need to pass to uh, in respect to public health and COVID, uh, maybe COVID relaxations. I think the biggest uh, thing that I'm going to be starting to think about now is is really twofold. Um, it's going to be about the schools, the return of schools and the return to education, but it's also going to be looking about the impact on jobs and what needs to be done to starting to try and encourage the creation of new jobs. If there was one legacy issue, well-being issue, that really concerns me, that I think is something I'm uh, addressing in discussions and so on, that's really the legacy of mental health uh, problems from uh, the impact of COVID, the impact of people being locked down for so long, uh, and the support that might be needed in terms of the popular well-being. So I think those are the things really, no particular one thing, but I think those are the priorities I'm going to focus on
0: over the coming couple of weeks. Well, Mick, thank you. As always, we've covered lots of subjects. We haven't talked about America at all. So maybe we'll revisit that because I think we get one more broadcast now before you you have to kind of withdraw and we we can't talk to you in in the usual way. Uh, So maybe we'll visit the uh, the Biden presidency then. But uh, I wish you well for the next month. And we look forward to seeing you in about a month's time on this programme. Well, thank you very much. And
1: thank you for the opportunity to talk to you.